You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. The black hardcover Bibles under your seat if you're using those. Page 980 uh, is where you can find today's text. And chapter 2 is really continuing what Paul started to talk about and write about in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, It's the first real imperative. It's the first command of this whole letter. The first time he tells them something to do. Because up until that point, he's been just describing what's true about them because of Jesus and how he prays for them because of Jesus. But in in verse 27 of chapter 1, he calls the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He, He calls them to live as citizens of Jesus's kingdom. And if you're able to be with us on Ash Wednesday just a few days ago, we looked a little bit at those last few verses of chapter one and, and some of what that entails. But, but what does Paul want? What is he after here? He wants the Philippians to remain steadfast in the face of conflict and in the face of suffering. He wants them to stand firm side by side for the sake of the gospel. So the question then is, how? Where, where does that steadfastness come from? What's the source of steadfastness? And what we see as he begins chapter 2 is that it's multiple layers deep. It's multiple layers deep. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of, full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, like those men so many centuries ago who came to your disciples, we say with them this morning, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Help us see Jesus. And we ask this morning together that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus, both in his humiliation and in his exaltation. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. The the steadfastness that Paul is calling for here has multiple layers underneath it. You heard Elise mention just a moment ago that, you know, we're near to spring. We're probably, since it's Pennsylvania, more like one of the many false starts to spring that we don't quite get there yet. But we're close to springtime. We're close to planting season. So picture layers of soil. 
if the plant, the, the outward visible result is steadfastness, then underneath that are some different layers of, t- of soil. Uh, there's topsoil, and then underneath that, there's some subsoil, and then underneath that, ultimately, is bedrock. At the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is detailing these kinds of layers. And here's what we learn. These are the three points that we're going to walk through with the rest of our time. Steadfastness comes from unity. Unity comes from humility. And humility comes from Jesus. Steadfastness comes from unity. Unity comes from humility. And humility comes from Jesus. So first, steadfastness comes from unity. If you're going to stand together with other people, if you're going to strive side by side with them, you need some kind of unity. We have, you have to recognize the deep oneness that you have with each other. And we're actually getting to see a real-time example of this playing out in front of us. Think about right now the juxtaposition between America and Ukraine. That was something that stood out to me, at least, in reflecting on President Biden's State of the Union address this past week. America right now feels completely fractured and divided over all sorts of things. Meanwhile, Ukraine, being confronted with its own existence, is standing together. Their national identity, the, the oneness that comes from a common identity as Ukrainians, is propelling a form of steadfastness and striving together. Now, that's a national identity. How much more should our spiritual identity propel that? And that's really what Paul's getting at here. He's using the language of citizenship throughout this letter, but especially at the end of, verse, of chapter 1. And he's saying Christians are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. We participate in the same spirit. We have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And Jesus has made us his own. So if the citizens of a country can strive together and stand together, how much more citizens of Jesus' kingdom? On most uh, photo apps on your phone, you maybe have these on your phone or, or even some social media platforms, there's a memories feature. And it'll automatically, if you have it on, it'll automatically bring up memories of things that have happened in years gone by. I use Google Photos, so it says, like, here's what happened one year ago and three years ago and five years ago. Paul begins chapter two by essentially doing that. The Philippian church is in this moment where they're experiencing some division among people and fragments of their church, some disunity. And in Paul's mind, that's compromising their ability to remain steadfast and to strive together. And so Paul activates the memories feature. He prompts them to remember what's true of their lives in Christ. And he says there at the beginning of chapter two, if, if, and he, he's prompting self-reflection, if there is any, have you ever been encouraged by Jesus? Have you ever been comforted by his love? Have you been changed by Jesus? Do you find unity with people across all kinds of lines? The best we can tell, the first three Christians in the Philippian church, the first three, were a Greek businesswoman named Lydia, wealthy probably, a Philippian, a Roman jailer, a Roman jailer and his family, and a young girl who used to be enslaved and demonically possessed. Those are the three, first, the three first Christians, best we can tell, in the church in Philippi. Now, what do they have in common by the standards of the world? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. But they have everything together in common because of their unity in Christ. Everything as participants in the same spirit. 
Because of this new life in Jesus, the Philippians have gained affection and sympathy for people they otherwise would have none for. And so Paul is saying, hey, if any of that's true, if any of this is true, live in light of that. Have the same love. Live in full accord. Literally, that means live together in soul with your fellow Christians. Now, unity for Christians does not mean uniformity. It's not a bland sameness. It's so much richer than that. It's taking a diversity of gifts and personalities, a diversity of backgrounds and life experiences, and it's saying all of those things matter. It's not like those things are unimportant, but they just matter far less than our primary shared identity in Jesus. So let Paul's words this morning activate the memories feature of your life. And I want to ask you this morning, church, have you ever been encouraged by Jesus? Have you ever been comforted by the love of Jesus? And I'm not asking this rhetorically. I would actually love to hear you respond back. Have you ever been encouraged by Jesus Christ in your life? Have you ever been comforted by the love of Jesus in your life? Have you ever started to find some unity with people who you would otherwise want nothing to do with in your life because of Jesus? Then stop letting small things rob your fundamental unity. We have to stop letting small things rob our fundamental unity and stop letting our preferences for church programs, our preferences for music styles, or even third, fourth, fifth order theological points become sources of division for us. I was talking earlier this week to a man who's been a pastor for more than three decades. And he was sharing with me, he was lamenting, that there are people who in the last 18 to 24 months have left his church that he had pastored previously for 25 to 30 years. In some cases, people who he had seen come to faith in Christ, had baptized, they had, in some cases, they had gotten married, he'd officiated their wedding, they'd had kids in some cases, he'd baptized their kids, buried members of their family, walked together with them, shepherded them in the gospel, and though the church changed no doctrinal positions, those people are gone now. Why? Why? Because somebody with an online platform said something like, masks are the definition of love. Or said wearing a mask is the definition, the fault line of a church compromising and capitulating. And someone got them hyped up and they left. Can you imagine what Paul would say to that? You don't even have to imagine it. Here's what he says to it. Here's what he says to it. Stop letting small things rob you of the fundamental unity you have in Jesus. You will never stand firm without unity. You will never strive side by side for the sake of the gospel without unity. Steadfastness, the goal of what Paul is calling the Philippians to here, steadfastness is rooted in unity. So where does the unity come from? Where does the unity come from? That's what Paul moves to next. And second, we see here that unity comes from humility. Unity comes from humility. Some of you might know this about me, others I'm sure don't, but uh, from fourth grade through eighth grade, I played the clarinet. Um, I took lessons, worked hard at it for a couple of those years, became decent. I was no prodigy. Uh, You're not missing anything because I don't play clarinet anymore. promise you that. But at the beginning of my eighth grade year, uh, I was the second chair clarinet in our middle school's concert band. Now in this band, Uh, you were allowed to challenge the chair in front of you. So if you thought that you were better than the the boy or girl sitting in the chair ahead of you, you could vie for that spot. It's not quite as valiant or heroic as like challenging a corrupt king for the throne. 
but it's kind of like the band nerd equivalent of, of that, okay? So you can picture that. A few months into the year, I challenged for first chair. And the way it worked was this. The, the piece of music was selected. Typically, there's the band director that picked a piece of music. Uh, you each had one week to go home and work on it. And then during a, a preset date, during a, a band rehearsal, the challenger and the challenged would both disappear in the band room kind of around the corner and out of sight. Uh, the order of who would play first was drawn randomly. Each person would take their turn playing, and then the band would vote. The, all the members of the band, it was probably 50 or 60 people in this band, would vote on, on who won. So it was a blind challenge. It was meant to just be about who played the part better. So on the appointed day, uh, the sitting first chair and I each took our turns playing this part of music. The band voted, and I won. And I won. But when we came around the corner and identified ourselves of who had played what part, the band director overruled the vote. He overruled the vote, and he said something like, hey, you both did a really good job, both played it really well, but we're actually going to stick with the order that we had. We, we're not going to make any big changes to the band right now. We're going to kind of stick with the way it was. Now, I don't remember if I was ever given more explanation. I probably blacked it out. There probably was more explanation. It's too painful to even go there. I had to just block it out. But I do remember two things. I do remember two things. One, a profound sense of injustice, like middle school, suburban, middle class injustice. I was feeling it. I was feeling it. I won fair and square, and then I didn't, and then I didn't. But the other thing I remembered was, well, I guess, like, what are the options in front of me? If I'm still going to play in this band at all, if I'm not just going to quit and hang it up, the only thing left to do is to keep playing the chair I've got, second chair. I'd forgotten about all of this, this memory, until I was reading this week about a, a symphony conductor. And he was asked once, what's the most difficult seat in your orchestra to fill? And his response was, second violin. Second violin. He went on to say, I can find plenty of first violinists. You might imagine as professional musicians, they're all vying for first chair. But to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever played in a, in a band or a, an orchestra, but can you relate to some of this? We want to, at least in some aspect of our lives, we want to sit first chair. We want to be recognized as competent, intelligent, capable, maybe the best at something or at least better than a lot of people at it. It's a major motivation for so much in life. Grades, jobs, salaries, public recognition, even like the way people dress or the kinds of cars they drive or the homes they live in. And you can go a long way on the back of a first chair drive, so to speak. You can go a long way on that. A lot of success, at least by the, the standards of the world, is built on this. But one place it can't get you is unity. One place it can't get you is deep love and affection, the kind that Paul is describing here, the full accord, the one mind. Because if you're actually going to do something together with other people, whether that's playing a band or something else, if you're actually going to play music together, someone has to be second chair and third chair and fourth chair. Someone has to play harmony. And at least some of the time in each of our lives, that someone is us. That someone is you. If you're only satisfied in the first chair, if you can't become content in anything else, you'll never have unity with other people. You'll always be way too consumed with you for that. And other people, therefore, will always be to you a threat 
or backs for you to step on to your next place. Any service that you offer other people will ultimately only be a roundabout way of serving yourself. Unity is only possible through humility. And what is humility? Well, Paul writes in verse 3, it's doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's counting other people more significant than yourself. It's not only looking to your own interests, which we're just naturally hardwired to do, but looking also to the interests of others. So humility is not devaluing yourself and who Jesus made you to be. That that can be a common misconception at times. And some of us start to think, well, as long as I'm not arrogant, as long as I'm not bragging and boasting all the time, I'm being humble. I used to actually picture this as as a spectrum in my mind, where arrogance, bravado, boasting, that was kind of the extreme on one side. And self-loathing or self-hatred was kind of the extreme on the other side. And I pictured as humility as kind of the the middle of that. It's the midpoint on that spectrum. The goal was to find that midpoint. But can I tell you this morning, humility is not the balance of those two extremes. Humility is actually nowhere to be found on that spectrum. Because that whole spectrum is fixated on who? On me, (laughs) on self, on self. And it might seem more obvious when someone is arrogant but you can actually be just as fixated on yourself in the opposite direction. And so Paul is saying here, ditch the spectrum. Stop jockeying for position or sizing yourself up every time you're around other people and go like, well, I'm clearly better than that person, but I'm not as good as that person. He's saying here, it's not ambition itself that's wrong. It's good to be driven for things, but selfish ambition, that's where we get into trouble. Looking to your own interests isn't wrong. You're going to naturally do that anyway, but also look to the interests of others. I think Tim Keller says it as well as anyone. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not pushing yourself down to this side of the spectrum a little bit more. It's thinking of yourself less. And there are moments in our lives that invite us into humility. In retrospect, that's what losing that first chair challenge in eighth grade was for me. And I've had more since and ones that are a lot more painful and costly than that. And you no doubt have had times in your life where your efforts have gone unrecognized. When you've gotten passed over, when someone else's preferences, someone else's opinion or decision has won and therefore yours has lost. How will you respond in these kinds of moments? And especially moments like these with other believers, with other people who have this unity of the Holy Spirit together. For the sake of unity, for the sake of steadfastness and striving together, will you pursue humility in those moments? By humility here, I don't mean carrying around those experiences as chips on your shoulder, wounded by them perpetually. Actually, the most encouraging thing to me in reflecting on my eighth grade band experience is that I haven't thought about it in two decades. That was the most encouraging thing to me about that this week. There are other moments where I've been humbled that I still carry around with me way too much, which means actually that there's still way too much of self and me in it. I actually haven't humbled myself there. I'm still carrying it around with me. But the fact that I've at least forgotten one, one that felt like a really huge deal at the time, tells me that there's hope, that that in days to come, I might actually do less from selfish ambition, 
that I might actually count others more significant than myself, that I might actually look more to the interests of others and not just my own. So how can we pursue that? How can we ditch that spectrum of arrogance and self-loathing and think of ourselves less? We can look to Jesus. We can look to Jesus. Steadfastness comes from unity. Unity comes from humility. And third, humility comes from Jesus. The, The bedrock the bedrock under any kind of steadfastness, any kind of unity, any kind of humility is Jesus. And if we've read any of Paul's writings before, this will come as no surprise to us. The the letter to the Philippians is nothing if not a testament to the worth of Jesus and what he's done. But in the providence of God, the, the disunity that the Philippians are experiencing in this moment, the threat that that is to their own steadfastness, it becomes the occasion for Paul to write down some of the most memorable and beautiful words, at least in my opinion, in all of scripture. It's debated whether this hymn of Christ, verses five through 11, the hymn of Christ, as it's sometimes called, and it's debated whether or not that originated with Paul. It's possible that this existed before Paul and was used in early Christian worship. But regardless of whether Paul is just borrowing this from something that already existed or whether this is his original work, it is both incredibly rich in truth and beautiful in its poetic form. And therefore, I would say it's one of the best texts that we have in scripture to commit to memory, to hide deeply in our hearts, just to feast on over and over again in your life. But the main point, the main point, the reason that we have these words in scripture is because Jesus Christ is the example of humility. He is the example par excellence of humility. If you want the steadfastness, you need the unity. If you want the unity, you need the humility. And if you want the humility, you desperately need the example of Jesus. So that we could spend a a ton of more time here. Let's just step our way briefly through these really packed verses in the hymn of Christ, verses five through 11. First, Paul says, we need to know Jesus existed before his incarnation, before he took on flesh. And Jesus is equal with God. We know from other things that Paul has written in other texts in the New Testament that it was through Jesus the world was created, that he is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. But, verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped all of the glory and the honor that he is due as the second person of the Trinity, all of the rights and privileges that are his as fully and equally God, Jesus opened his hand. He didn't cling to him. He didn't grasp him. He didn't close his fist tightly around those things. He opened his hand and he made himself lower. In his incarnation, as Paul writes, he emptied himself. That doesn't mean that he gave up any of his divinity. He remained fully God but he willingly gave up exercising all of those rights and all of those privileges and all of that power that he had in order to be born in the likeness of men, in order to come into this world in human form. When a wealthy person gives up an easy, comfortable life in order to take a more lowly, unglamorous one, that's inspiring, isn't it? It's inspiring. I've talked before about a man named Chuck Feeney who amassed a fortune of somewhere between 8 and $9 billion doing um, duty-free shops around the world. Between 8 and $9 billion he was worth, and then he gave it all away in his lifetime. He's 90 years old now, and he lives in a two-bedroom apartment with his wife. 
I would say that's just a little bit below the station in life he could be occupying as a man who once had almost $9 billion in his, in his bank account. But that is nothing compared to Jesus' incarnation. Nothing. Jesus' humility is quite literally unfathomable. It's like the multi-trillionaire becoming poor and homeless. Not even a two-bedroom apartment. Poor and homeless. Though he had all the riches in the world. But Jesus' humility didn't stop at the incarnation. He humbled himself, verse 8, by becoming obedient. And you heard, heard Nate read it and refer to it earlier, John chapter 13, obedient as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one who washed his disciples' feet. And he became an obedient servant, Paul goes on, to the point of death. Think about that. The author of life, the author of life allowed people he created, people to whom he gave their lives, take his own. The humility of that. He had to to take on flesh and enter into the brokenness of this world to even make that possible in the first place. And what's more, Paul continues, it was not any kind of death. It was death on a cross. It was the most humiliating form of death the depraved human mind could invent. Rome would not inflict this punishment on its own citizens because it was too barbaric. It was specifically designed to rip out every last shred of a person's dignity. A note from the ESV study Bible puts it this way. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the preexistent Christ. It was the ultimate counterpoint to, to Jesus and who he was in his glory before he entered into the world. So what does humility look like? What does it look like to count others more significant? What does it look like to look to the interests of other people? It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Jesus kept going lower. He kept going lower from glory to the incarnation, from incarnation to obedient service, from obedient service to death, and not any form of death, but death on a cross. Each step, a step lower. Each time, when it seemed like there couldn't be more for him to give, he gave more. Each time when it seemed like surely he had already sacrificed enough of his own self-interest and counted others more significant than his own rights and privileges, he kept going a step lower. That, Christian, is our example to follow. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But, but, This is not just your example to follow. Jesus' humility is your salvation. This is how Jesus rescued you from sin and death and the wrath of God. This is how he ransomed and redeemed you. This is how he purchased your forgiveness and reconciled you with God. And what's more, it was because of this humility, it was because of this utter humiliation that God exalted Jesus. Therefore, Paul writes, verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him. All of those stair steps downward into humiliation, incarnation, obedience, death, it was a little bit like those human slingshot rides you might see at an amusement park or on the boardwalk. It keeps, when you're sitting in it, it keeps getting pulled lower and lower a little bit at a time until it hits the absolute bottom. And then there's a moment when it's released 
and just the force of it and the momentum launches upward. Jesus humbled himself for our salvation and it wasn't until he had hit the absolute bottom, the most humiliated he could possibly be, that God exalted him. And it says literally, God super exalted him. That's the Greek word, super exalted him, highly exalted him above every name so that one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he alone is Lord. Because Jesus' humility is your salvation, make his humility your example. Make his humility your example. Just like you, if I'm honest, I don't want to die to myself like that. Just like you, I more readily think the path to exaltation, the path to greatness, is asserting myself, is sitting first chair, is counting myself more significant and looking out for my own interests, looking out for number one. It's not. It's not. Humble yourselves. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And what? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You see, exaltation belongs to God. Belongs to God. And just as that was true for Jesus, it's true for you. Your job, my job in this life is to keep taking the low place and then to go lower. To think of ourselves even less And when we think we've reached the bottom, when we think there couldn't possibly be another lower place for us to occupy, to think of ourselves even less than that. To die to self again and again and again. Now, can you imagine the kind of unity and therefore the kind of steadfastness and striving together that we would experience if we actually pursued that kind of humility, the humility of Jesus? It really would be as Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 28, a clear sign to Jesus' opponents of their destruction, but of our salvation. That would make, if we actually live this out, that would make Jesus' church a force to be reckoned with in this world. Not the fractured, impotent, uncompelling mess that we so often see instead, at least in the church in America. As much as ever in my life, I want to see Jesus' church thrive. I want to see this local expression of it thrive. I want to see steadfastness and I want to see striving together. But friends, the way to get there is humility. The way up is the way down. The road to that is Jesus's road. It is humility. Because you have been saved by Jesus's humility. Be humble like Jesus. Press on in humility like Jesus, have this mind among yourself. So countercultural. Have this mind among yourself. Take the low place and then go lower. Trust that at the proper time, God will exalt you. Exaltation does not belong to you and me. Exaltation belongs to God. And thanks be to him, he has exalted our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, by remaining faithful to death, by your obedient service to the point of death, even death on a cross, you have shown us the road to greater love. You have shown us the path to real exaltation. So come now and help our weak faith. Create a pure heart in us for the places that we persist in pride, for the places that we keep trying to assert ourselves instead of taking the low place. Renew and strengthen our spirit. Give us the grace that we so desperately need to follow you in your example of humility. For surely it is your humility 
It is through your humility that you have purchased our salvation. We're grateful for that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.